Hi, welcome again to our weekend services here at the Cornerstone that is coming to you online. And, uh, you know, we have a couple of more weeks uh, where we are going to present the service to you in a pre-recorded manner. And then after that, we'll be shifting on to a live mode. So in May, we'll be coming to you live from uh, our venue at Katong. Now, before we end off this last couple of weeks of pre-recorded messages, I want to give a very uh, special shout out to two amazing young ladies and, uh, who have uh, been uh, the ones behind the scene working uh, very hard every week in order to bring you these services online, and that's Tracia and Hochi. And, uh, and I want to just give a big shout out to both of them. But, you know, this weekend, I want to start a, a, a couple of messages on the subject of freedom, and I've entitled the message, Made Free. You see, one of the most popular verses that we all can recite is found in John chapter 8, verse 31 to 36, whereby Jesus said, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The context of what Jesus uh, was saying related directly to knowing the truth. And he said that when you know the truth, the truth shall set us free. You see, the Jewish people, when they heard Jesus saying this, they claimed that they are already free because they were the sons of Abraham. But Jesus goes a little further by explaining that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The essence of this discourse that Jesus gave is that true freedom isn't outward, but inward. So I want to begin this uh, short series uh, this weekend by talking about freedom. You know, Jesus himself declared concerning his own ministry on the earth that he came to proclaim freedom to the captives and to set free those who are oppressed. So it's amazing because freedom is such an amazing subject matter that over the uh, decades of, uh, and the hundreds of years of human history, people have been willing to give up their lives in order to pursue freedom. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who spoke of letting freedom ring in his famous speech that is now entitled, I Have a Dream. Standing on the ground where 8,000 men gave their lives, Abraham Lincoln began his famous Gettysburg Address by describing the birth of America as a nation conceived by liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He appealed to those gathered and to all posterity that the American Civil War must give birth to a new freedom in the nation. Now here's something inescapable. The desire for your freedom is universal. The reason this is so is because God created us and gave us a fundamental quality that's different from all other creatures. We cannot be domesticated. We are not driven by instinct, nor by circumstances alone, but instead we are endowed with the ability to make choices by our volition. Karl Marx said that history is formed by the play of economic forces, he believes that all our decisions are determined by economics. Freud argues that we are what we are because of unconscious drives. In other words, you don't even know why you do what you do. Neo-Darwinians say that however we rationalize our behaviors, we do what we do because people in the past did so, survive and handed down their genes to us. So it's all natural selection. It's all about survival. According to these propositions, then free will is really an illusion. However, let it be known that these are not true and that freedom and our freedom to choose is something very real. In his book, Man's Search for, Vic uh, for Meaning, Viktor Frankl wrote about his experience in the concentration camps during the Second World War. In fact, this book that he wrote, uh, he only took nine days to finish writing this book and it's uh, considered one of the ten most influential books ever written in the history of mankind. 
Can you imagine that this man went through those years in the concentration camp, the years where he spent in those camps seeing the people being carted off to the gas chambers to be gassed and to be killed, you know, the people that were dying around him suffering starvation. And then when he finally was liberated to come out from uh, his captivity and go back to his family and his home and to discover that all his loved ones have been slaughtered and killed and now having to fight bitterness and disillusionment. And yet in, the, in perhaps the most famous quotation found in the book, Victor wrote the following words. He said, Everything can be taken away from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You see, freedom is real. Freedom is an innate quality bestowed on all humans by virtue of God creating us in His own image. However, the Bible focuses on freedom in a manner that's quite different from the world's focus. The world focuses on people's freedom to do whatever it is that they want to do. But Jesus continually focuses on the freedom that is inward. You see, over the next couple of messages, I want to speak about two different levels of freedom that is found in the Word of God. The first has to do with our individual freedom. And, uh, and that means that we need to get free from the things that hold us in bondage. It's about the inward freedom that each of us needs to discover. And the second freedom relates to creating a community that walks in freedom together. You see, both are essential because the first thing is that if we don't each walk in the freedom that God has given to us individually, then we cannot walk in freedom together as a community. You see, freedom isn't just about us doing whatever it is that we want to do at the expense of what other people are going through. Instead, it is to be practiced in the context of a community of people that walks free together. When it comes to our personal freedom, the Lord's focus is always on the internal and not on the external. If we are able to get free on the inside, then the external will follow. Now, here's an interesting passage of Scripture I'd like for you to consider. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 to verse 23, Paul says this, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For you, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a prize. Do not become slaves of men. You see, the context of Paul's days is that slavery was a common practice within the Roman Empire. At that, say, at that time, people were getting born again and saved, and people were being saved across all segments of society, both amongst those who are slaves as well as amongst those who are free. What is so amazing about this passage of Scripture is that we are told that there are only two options when it comes to freedom. You are either a slave of Jesus Christ or you are a slave to men. There is no other option. You see, we, we're, at that time, if there were slaves um, you know, um, you know, in their social sta status, but they were freed on the inside of them, then they really truly are free. You see, whether we are slaves to Christ or slaves to men is not determined by our outward social status. But if you find a person who's a freed man, but who's walking not in subjection to Christ, then that person is no better than a slave because in reality, that person is a slave to men indeed. Now, the bad truth of it is, uh, that is given to us is this, that you know, when we are truly free, it doesn't matter who is in charge politically. It does not matter how adverse the situation or the circumstances that you're going through. It doesn't matter if you're persecuted. It doesn't matter if people are standing with you or not or against you. You see, when you're truly free on the inside, nothing can take that freedom away from you. 
Now, this is precisely the problem that confronted Jesus in his days. You see, the Jewish people at that time were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior, not to deliver them on the inside, but to deliver them on the external. They thought that the Savior would come and they would, you know, take, get rid of the bondage, you know, that came from the Roman Empire and, get, and took the nation of Israel out into a place of independence but when Jesus came, he never fought the Romans. He never fought the political system. Instead, he sought to bring a new kind of freedom, a freedom which sets people free from sin and from bondage. You see, the irony of our Christian freedom is that what, that what is true freedom is that it is found in becoming a slave to Jesus Christ. You cannot find true freedom from sin and bondage until you are willing to subject yourself to the Lord. You see, over the next uh, um, two messages, what I want to do is I want to co cover four areas in which we need to find freedom in. These are areas that the, the Bible, the Scriptures actually give extensive uh, emphasis ab uh, about. And according to the weightage of Scriptures, I want to cover these subjects for us because gaining freedom implies gaining mastery over our own lives and serving Jesus in a way that pleases Him. Now, you cannot talk about freedom from sin without talking about freedom from sexual immorality. The emphasis on sexual purity is spread throughout the Bible. From the book of Genesis all the way to Revelations, every book in the Bible, you'll find the writers of the scriptures speaking something about sexual purity. Now, this is not a favorite subject that we want to talk about in church, isn't it? It's not something that, you know, we really like to, uh, you know, be discussing openly, but yet it is something important that we do need to cover simply because the Bible talks about it so much. And the truth is this, that throughout this, uh, that when it pertains to this subject of sexual uh, immorality or sexual purity, the matter really relates to men much more than to women. You see, some weeks ago, there was a controversy on the internet in regards to an article that was uh, posted on Thurs, whereby a youth pastor appealed to her young women that they should not dress provocatively so as not to, um, you know, stumble the young man that is in the, um, in the youth ministry. Now, this caused a little bit of an uproar online because people took issue with it by uh, deeming that the, the youth pastor was saying that the responsibility to curb sexual uh, lust is on the women's side whereby they need to dress, uh, you know, appropriately. Of course, the internet vitriol took the whole article out of context and asserted things to the author which were not meant by the author at all. And that poor author was cancelled, was attacked vehemently and, you know, that's just not right. Now, let me uh, put it this way. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, which is part of our holy scriptures, it is an absolute truth that Christian women should dress modestly and not in any revealing manner. And that's modesty, that's proper for Christians to abide by. But let me also not stop there and let me add this, that when you examine the Bible in its fullness, in its, uh, uh, in it, in its extent and in expense, the scriptural instruction on, on sexual purity is heavily pointed towards the responsibility of men and not women. It is quite clear that the struggle with lust and with sexual sins is much more prevalent with men than with women. All you need to do is look at, you know, uh, the statistics with regards to pornography and it's primarily men that are, you know, uh, uh, the users of porn. 
you know, when it comes to um, sex uh, uh, abuse and sexual crimes and all that, again, it weighs heavily on the side of men who are uh, confronting these kind of problems. And accordingly, the scripture also gives much more attention, focusing on the men and speaking to men about sexual purity. Now, I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about this by talking again about a subject that's not very common on our pulpits, and that is the subject of circumcision. Now, this is something that we don't often discuss because this is not required uh, in the New Testament for those who are Christian men. But I want you to notice for a moment that the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament required an outward action and an outward sign. And the sign was that, uh, that the men had to be circumcised. You see, circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin of the male genital uh, and why was this required? Have you ever wondered why does God require the sign of the covenant to be a circumcision and on the men only and it had to be on the male genitalia, right? And the obvious answer here is that there is a requirement for the men to be circumvented in their sexual desires and drive if they are to pursue a covenantal relationship with God. In other words, for them to come into relationship with God, this is an area whereby God puts His fingers on. You see, the ancients believed that there are three major episodes in the book of Genesis that tells us why the world is as messed up as it is. And the first is, of course, the sin of Adam and Eve. And this sin and disobedience to God caused mankind to come into a fallen state. And so the nature of sin then goes through all of mankind through Adam and Eve. And the propensity to sin and to disobey is there in the nature of every person. The second incidence is found in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God copulated with the daughters of men, and the descendants that came out of that uh, were called uh, giants or Nephilims. And the Bible gives us a description that they came and they filled the earth with violence and they fell upon the inhabitants of the earth. And this was a major episode that brought about a proliferation of sexual immorality as well as violence upon the earth. And thirdly, there is Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, Babel where the people began to come together and they began to plot a thing to overthrow God. And that comes you know, that original um, uh, desire of men to overthrow and to overcome God and to come against God's plans. Now, all these three incidents, you know, uh, of these three incidents, you know, one of them sprung from, a, from sexual excesses. One of them explains to us about the sexual immorality that pervades the world. You know, at the same time, these ancient, you know, primary accounts uh, indicate that when the children of Israel began to occupy the promised land, the sexual pra practices of the Canaanite nations were very, very perverse uh, during that time. Uh, from the time of the patriarchs all to the time where Israel began to occupy the promised land. I mean, these archaeological uh, uh, um, documents shows us just the, the perversion, the, the extreme sexual perversion that was in the land at that time. So it is in this light that it becomes clear and obvious that the circumcision of the men who entered into a covenant relationship with Jehovah was that they were to behave very differently in regards to their sexual desire as compared to the rest of the world. They were to be constrained in this area and uh, they could not do whatever it is that they wanted when it comes to their sexual desires. Now, when, you, when we come to the New Testament, the first thing we need to establish is that men, rest assured, you do not need to get circumcised physically anymore, okay? And, uh, but the emphasis on men dealing with their sexual desires continues onwards. It's, it remains. You know, let me give you a couple of scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 to verse 19, the, the Bible instructs men, flee sexual immorality 
For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Now here's something important for men, for all of us to realize that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're not talking about our spirit. You're not talking about some you know, uh, ethereal substance. It is our physical body. God says our physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to verse 5, let me read this to you. For this is the will of God. Now, if you've ever wondered what is God's will for you, man, then this is the will of God that is uh, explained and explicitly given to us. It says your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honour, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, it is interesting that in the New Testament, even though a physical circumcision is not required for the men, a spiritual circumcision is still required for all those who desire to follow Jesus Christ. It is mentioned in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 13. In fact, it's very interesting that when Paul spoke about circumcision that is not made with hands, you know, he uses words and he mirrors circumcision to the process of water baptism. And that's very interesting. Now, this is not just found in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, there has always been an alluding to the fact that God was looking for a circumcision that is not on the outside physically, but on the inside. In fact, there are three parts of our body that is required uh, where we experience a circumcision. Our hearts, our ears, and our lips. And in the area of our hearts, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to 16, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Concerning our ears, Jeremiah spoke about it in uh, chapter 6 of Jeremiah, verse 10, and of course in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. In the area of our lips, it's Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Now, each of these areas speaks about an uh, area in which we need to consecrate and to guard in our lives. When it comes to the circumcision of our hearts, it has to do with our thoughts as well as our imagination. And this is the area that we need to guard because lust begins in the area of our thoughts and our imagination. And then we have to guard our ears, which is the entry point into our person. What we see, what we hear, what we let in into our being, and finally our lips, that what we are to speak. And we must not speak anything that is lewd, that is obscene, that is sexual, but let our speeches be pure. You know, sexual bondage is one of the worst kinds of bondages that people can get into. You know, and, and when you're trapped in sexual bondages, it can be very dilapidating, it can be very hard to come out from, it brings shame and guilt, and that's a horrible thing to be in, be it pornography or any other kinds of sexual addiction or sin. Now, if you're trapped in one of these areas, I want to encourage you to seek help from your brothers uh, around you, know, uh, you, okay? And from your cell leaders as well. You see, there's something about sexual sin that when you bring it out to the light and you confess it, you know, it begins to lose its power and its hold over your lives. And what you need is you need others to stand and walk with you and hold you accountable. I want to strongly encourage you as well, if pornography is your problem, to go to this website called covenanteyes.com in which you are able, they provide a tool for you to lock your internet access into websites that you should not be going into. It's an accountability tool. So I want to encourage you, don't hide, don't cover up. Come clean because the Lord wants to set all of us free from sexual immorality. Now, the second area in which I believe God wants us to be free from is to be free from the area of our appetites. And this is an area where we need to experience genuine freedom. And uh, because 
appetites can cover a whole uh, uh, array of things. And there are many areas where we can be ruled by our appetites. These are areas which drive, which are driven by addiction, whereby we are no longer under, uh, uh, the, we no longer have control over our appetites, but our appetites end up having control over us. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, verse 25 is a very interesting analogy that Paul gives to us. And it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race or run, but one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain or win it? And everyone who competes for a prize is temperate. And the word temperate means to exercise self-control in all things, to exercise self-control in everything. And now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The point to note here is that in the natural, you need self-control in order to win and to achieve our goals and to reach the goals that we have in our lives. In the spiritual, this is true as well. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that we need self-control in all that we do if we are aiming not just for a, a, a perishable crown, but for an eternal imperishable crown that God has for us. That means, you know, that it is okay for you to watch Netflix, but exercise self-control over it. It is okay for you to enjoy your food, but hey, don't let your food control you. It is okay to pursue a hobby, but have self-control and be temperate about all things. Now, many of you know that, you know, I went kind of on a diet in November of last year because I was uh, getting really, really overweight. And, uh, and I really needed to have mastery over my physical uh, eating appetite. And over the last uh, few months, I mentioned, uh, you know, in my, in my messages, you know, some things about the diet that I was doing. And I want to say this, that, you know, as pastors, when we preach a message, when we develop a message, you know, we don't just do it, you know, in a very academic way, but we are listening and hearing what God is doing. And of course, as God speaks to us and God, and God is doing something in our lives out of our experience, we share that. And because of that, you know, I've interjected some things about my diet in the messages over the last couple of months. And in fact, I've cracked some jokes about intermittent fasting as well as about keto. And someone wrote to me uh, last week um, to share that there are people in the, in the congregation that struggle with eating disorders and who have been anorexic in the past. And when I talk about dieting, it affects them adversely. Now, firstly, let me apologize for any insensitivities on my part. And I understand that the church is really a wide spectrum and wide array of people that listen to us. And when we address something on one side of the spectrum, people who are on the other end of the spectrum of the problems may become affected by it. And let me say this categorically, that I'm not asking anyone to go on a diet, neither am I promoting a diet, but simply as I am going through something in my own life, I just spoke a little bit about it and I cracked some jokes about it. Again, I apologize for that. But the point I want to make is this, that any excess is not good. An excessive compulsion just to diet and to look good physically is not good. And uh, neither is it good for us to be overeating because excessive eating is very bad for our health as well. And I think that it is in the latter that most people struggle with. You see, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we are told to beware of two kinds of teachings that Paul calls the doctrine of demons. In other words, their source is demonic and their result is going to be bad fruits. Okay? And the first is a doctrine that forbids marriage. And the second is a, is a commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive with thanksgiving. So these are the two that Paul calls doctrine of demons. Number one, that you forbid marriage. Number two, that you forbid or you require the abstinence from foods which God has already created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, let it be known here once and for all that in Cornerstone, we do not forbid marriage. In fact, we encourage our young people to get married. Amen? 
and our young people should get married, you know? It's very few instances in which God does give a person a gift of celibacy, and if you have that gift, by all means, enjoy the singlehood that God has given to you. And here in Cornerstone, neither do we have a dietary system where people must follow that. You may ask me, Pastor, is it okay for a Christian to eat pork and still go to heaven? I want to tell you this, that you can eat pork and go to heaven even faster, okay? <laughs> now, um, but you know, even though we do not forbid marriage, let me say this, that we do counsel our people concerning marriage. We do a premarital counseling so that when people get into marriage, they know what marriage entails. And I want to say this as well. There are instances, very few, very rare, you know, maybe just a very handful over the decades that we've been pastoring the church that we have advised people against marrying someone specific because there are issues of compat compatibility or there are other practical complications that may arise from their marriage. You see, God has never ever told us as pastors who should marry who, but in rare instances, God has told us who should not marry who, and we give them as a counsel, not as a command. Now, in the same way, we advise all of you to be careful about what you eat, even though we do not forbid you from eating anything. Now, we don't forbid you from drinking bubble tea, but we strongly advise you not to be indulgent in consuming uh, something that is so sugary and that's really not healthy because, again, Paul said this, that our bodies, our physical body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is our responsibility when we understand nutrition and we understand health that we eat properly and we are not excessive in this area. You see, there's a big difference between hunger and appetite. Satan came and tempted Jesus in his moment of hunger. And even then, God did not yield to the devil. He did not give in to his hunger, which is legitimate. In the same way, we fast because one of the benefits of fasting is it helps us in gaining mastery over our appetites so that we are not under their control, whatever those appetites might be. Now, here's one more thing for your consideration. You know, when David uh, faced Goliath and he uh, told uh, King Saul that he would be the one that will challenge Goliath, the people really ridiculed him and laughed at him. But David recounted his experience in looking and shepherding the flock. And he said that he had killed the lion and he had killed the bear before and in the same way, he'll kill Goliath. It's interesting what the lion and what the bear represents. In Job 38 verse 39, we are told this, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? And you see, the young lions, the lions, they are you know, distinguished by this, that they have a huge appetite that cannot be satisfied. The lion speaks about an uncontrolled appetite in our lives, something that, you know, areas in our lives where we have no control over. Likewise, the bear does two things very well and is well known for it eats and then it sleeps. It stores up as much food as it can in its body and then it goes into hibernation. It eats a lot and then it goes and it just sleeps. In other words, we will never be able to deal with the Goliaths that God is calling us to overcome if we cannot deal with the excesses in the area of our appetites, our eating and our sleeping. Now, eating and sleeping is a blessing from God. Amen. God fills our mouth with good things. He gives His beloved sleep. But it is when these things become excessive and we become lazy and then it becomes a problem. So I want to encourage you to hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about. Amen. You know, today, if you're struggling and you're dealing with sexual immorality and you're in bondage and you know that you are not free, you can get set free today. You can come to the Lord and ask the Lord and say, Lord, change my mind about this. I want to be set free. And then you can take the steps of action 
by going to a brother in your cell group, by going to your cell leaders and confessing the area of your addiction and asking a few brothers to come alongside you to walk with you through this process and to hold you accountable. You see, God did not save us and gave His life for us and then to leave us then in bondage. His desire is for us to walk free, free from any appetite that might seek to control us, free from sexual immorality. Amen. And I want to encourage you, don't delay. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord speaking, if you hear the Holy Spirit touching your hearts, don't wait another day. Do not harden your hearts, but allow God because this is God speaking to us. This is God warning us that He has come and He wants to set us free. Amen. In the next message, I want to talk about emotional freedom as well because so many of us are controlled by our emotions. And finally, I also want to talk about financial freedom. And that's important because finances can be something that pulls us down. The Bible tells us that the uh, borrower is slave to the lender. And that's an area of freedom that God truly wants us to walk in. And then before I, I finish this series off, I will be talking about freedom as a community that God wants us to have uh, here in Cornerstone. Amen. Well, I hope you're blessed and I pray that you will not just sit and listen and not take action, especially if you know that you are caught in some form of bondage or other because truly Jesus has set us free and He wants us to walk in the freedom that He has purchased for us. Be blessed. God bless you. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.